John 15, 18. If you guys want to turn there. I'm not even ready. All right. It says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, um, but I choose you out of the world. I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecute me, they'll also persecute you. If they kept my word, they'll also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on, my, on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works uh, that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. But when the helper comes whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you will also bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. This is God's word. Thanks, Dale. Good morning, everybody. Good to see your smiling faces here. Um, we are in a series in uh, walking through the gospel according to John, and um, today God decided to give me a super easy passage to cover. Um, <laughs> when the world hates you, well, let's talk about that. That's easy. Um, but I'm, I'm excited to cover it, and uh, in preparing for this, uh, I was thinking about uh, last night we got home. My family loves to watch movies. We watch movies all the time, but Gavin was really perturbed. Because we were going to watch, I forget what it was, some other movie. And he was like, can we please watch something fun, please, that has action in it. So Lily was like, I think we should watch Lord of the Rings. So good choice, right? Always. And the thing I love about Lord of the Rings, um, besides just that it's an awesome movie, awesome trilogy, is that um, the book is even better, as, as often happens with movies. Um, and I was... I was thinking about it last night, how the book ends. Has anybody read the book by Tolkien? Great. <laughs> and, um, yeah, the book by Tolkien, it ends differently than the movies. Um, if you've read Lord of the Rings, something odd happens at the end, and it's these heroes who've been on this journey, and, you know, they've partnered with this angelic race of creatures like the elves and there. They've fought all these battles and, and they've gone on these grand adventures and then they get home and it's just not the same. It, it, everything's different. Something's changed, right? Something's changed because they've experienced this totally new life. They've been all over the world. Their mind's been expanded. They've been to Rivendell, which is kind of like, kind of like heaven, Right? It's amazing, this place across the Western Sea, and, and, and they yearn for it. And, and it's as if the, the magic and the, and the beauty from this far-off place has, has swept into their soul. And so this paradox happens when 
they get home and they're like greater people than they've ever been before. And everybody notices it and they make them their leaders and they watch them and they say, man, they're different. They, they laugh more loudly than they used to. And they weep more deeply than they used to. And they have this wisdom toward the future. They see more of it than they, than they used to. But they're weird because they're like always walking off and strolling along the seashore. And wh- why do they do that? Why do they spend hours by the sea just walking around, letting the, the waves kind of roll over their soul? What, what's going on with them? It's a, it's a paradox because everybody notices that what's different about them, and yet, even though they've never been more loved and never been more accepted in some ways in their country, they've also never felt less at home in their home before. We tracking? It's almost like it's that citizenship that they have is, is kind of shifted. And there's this, this rootedness in their soul that their life in some ways is no longer there. It's, it's over the sea. So even though they're here living and loving and leading and, and doing all these things, their relationship to the world that they live in has become complex. The relationship to the friends that they had, the coworkers, their neighbors, all these people around them, it's become increasingly complex. And this line captures my attention. The song they sing as they, as they walk along the seashore, they say, we still remember we who dwell in this far land beneath the trees, thy starlight on the western seas. And at the end of their life, they go over the seas to that far off land and they leave their, their home forever. And the reason I bring that up at the beginning of this sermon is because in this passage, Jesus is telling us that the same thing happens to us. Jesus says, you don't understand the radical nature, the radical change that's happened to you through your encounter with me. Something has happened to you. The very life of heaven has swept into your soul. So, your relationships to this world are going to be different. Your, your relationships with your friends in your homeland, they're, they're shifting. They're becoming more complex because people around you haven't experienced what you've experienced. They haven't seen what you've seen. And I'm taking you on these adventures and these battles and these ordeals. And in the process, your, your perspective is shifting and your mind is expanding. And there's this greatness that's entering into you. But in this process, your, your approach to life and, and death and what was once valuable and who you are, your identity, it's, it's all shifting. Your approach to everything is being transformed. You're going to find that the people around you, the people you love and want to serve and you work with, spend time with, they're going to find it more and more difficult to figure you out. They will never understand you. And in some cases, that lack of understanding will become hostility. In some cases, they'll kill you. And Jesus says, don't make this mistake. Don't miss the radical nature of what's happening to you. Don't miss the fact that the pain and complexity that you may experience that's happening between you and your homeland and your friends is because you're here and yet you're not here. Right? This was home, but it's still home, kind of, but it's not quite the same. And the sound of that, the Western Sea has sunk in deep within your soul. Now, the reason we have to look at this today 
this passage is because Jesus is saying here that there is a profound difference between those who have believed the gospel and experienced Christ, the citizens of heaven, right, um, who have this new life force of heaven in their lives. There's a difference between them and the people around them who haven't yet experienced Christ. And he says the difference is so fundamental we have to lay it out. And as we've walked through this chapter, Jesus has said, your relationships are changing. Your relationship to me is different. I used to call you servants. I no longer call you servants. I call you what? Friends. Yeah, and I'm going away, but don't worry. I'm going to send a comforter to be with you. Your relationship to me is changing, and your relationship to each other is changing. Right? A new commandment I give you. Love one another as I've loved you. And then he says, thirdly, and this is the part we're on today, your relationship to the rest of the world is changing as well. And if the world hates you, remember it hated me first. There's an amazing truth in this passage we don't really talk about, maybe even think about very much, that Jesus was living a life that was in a head-on collision with the world. And he experienced hostility because of that life. And therefore, we as his disciples, if we're living that life, we can expect the same. We have to understand this truth today so that we aren't surprised when that happens. And so that we can question ourselves. Because if there is no head-on collision between us and the world in any place in our lives, we have to ask ourselves, are we really following Jesus? So don't miss this today because Jesus says, I'm, I'm telling you this so that you won't go astray. If you don't understand the difference between yourself and the rest of the world, you're going to continually be shocked and surprised and confused and horrified. And in the end, you'll be defeated. And that's why we have to look at this. So this passage tells us a number of things about the world that will help us. And it's bleak, but it's beautiful. Okay, so three things we're going to discover about the world. The world's thinking, the world's hatred and the world's hope. You guys ready? All right, let's, let's dive in. What does Jesus teach us about the world's thinking? Well, first of all, you know, you have to define this word world, because how you define that is going to greatly influence how you read this text and how you live out your faith. And there are different branches of Christianity that have defined this differently, and therefore their lives look completely different than that other group over there. Are we tracking? Pretty important we understand that. And so this, this world, uh, this word world is, is a Greek word. It's called uh, cosmos. Everybody say cosmos. Yeah, and, and so you see this world pop up throughout Scripture. For instance, a few chapters ago in John chapter 12, Jesus says, I came to save the world and not to condemn it. John 3.16, he says it. You guys know that one. For God so loved the, yeah, that he gave his only begotten son. And then 1 John comes along, same author, different text, and he says, love not the world or the things that are in the world. And that, that's a little confusing, right? Wait, are we supposed to love the world? Not love the world? Can only God love the world? It's a little confusing. And it seems like they contradict. But the answer is, this word world is not used the same way every time. We have words like that in English, too, right? Words that... We use, and, and they have different meanings in different contexts. So the word cosmos means two things. One, it can mean the material universe, the created space, the human world. We talk about the world as earth, right? Or sometimes in our culture, we talk about uh, first world, second world, third world countries. 
it's not as in vogue as it used to be, right? No, sorry if I was politically incorrect there. It's a term we use. Um, sometimes we use it to talk about human society. And the Bible clearly says that when God made the world, was it good or bad? Yeah, every time he creates something. Water, he separates from land. And what's he say? It is good. Yeah, and yet there's this weirdness that's come down to us through Greek philosophies. And it's affected certain parts of Christianity that kind of says, don't be worldly. Love not the world. That's talking about the physical, material, or human world. That's, that's called Gnosticism. It's a Gnostic view. It's a belief that says the physical stuff, the terra firma, the flesh, it's bad inherently. And only the spiritual stuff is good. Have you guys heard that before? Yeah, that's called the Gnostic view. And it's really distorted our understanding of Scripture. It shows up all over the place in Christianity. It shows up in prudishness about sex. It shows up in negativity toward the arts. Politics are unspiritual, right? Don't, don't do anything carnal. Don't go to the fair. That was one when I was growing up. The fair was too carnal. It's a carnival. It's fleshly. People are drunk there. Don't Stiff arm. I grew up in a group. We couldn't go to baseball games. It was too, yeah, too carnal. Okay, anyway. Um, so it, it can show up all over the place. What you do for a living is, is somehow unspiritual. When you produce beauty, art, love, it's unspiritual. And that's, guys, biblically, that's nonsense. That's not what the Bible teaches. Just do a quick study of 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, where Paul says, every created thing was created good. Nothing is unclean in itself. It's only how we use it. Right? We tracking? So there's this tragedy that somehow love not the world has, be, has become something that means, like, don't love the physical, material, or human world. And I'm really thankful for people like John Piper and others who have started talking about uh, kind of recapturing the writings of Jonathan Edwards um, and, and promoting this view called Christian hedonism, which sounds awesome. Christian hedonism. Anybody, anybody want to hear more about that? Yeah, it's awesome. It's like bacon and beer for the glory of God. <laughs> uh, the other night, I got to, I was fortunate enough to be invited to uh, a family's uh, house in our church, and um, somebody had gotten Kobe beef steaks and really nice bottles of wine. And we sat there and we ate those steaks for the glory of God. <laughs> it was it was. Beautiful. It was delicious. Best steak I've ever had in my life. And here's the deal. We get to do that for God's glory. But there's this, this really distorted view that says that those kinds of things can be bad. But guys, don't you know that God created us to enjoy him through his creation? Paul says in 1 Corinthians, so whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Yeah, sure. Any good thing, any created thing can become idolatrous when we put it before God. Sure. That's worshiping the creature instead of the creator. Paul talks about that in Romans. But God loves us and wants us to live a life that honors him through the good things that he's created. And so John Piper famously says, God is most glorified in us when we're most satisfied in him. 
And one of the ways we can express our love for God is not by demonizing things he's created and avoiding them, but by finding their proper use and enjoying them as unto the Lord. You tracking? All right, so first way that the word world or cosmos is used is physical, material, or human world. Secondly, it can be used to mean the spirit of the world, a system of thinking in which the material human world has become an end in itself, right? There's this word uh, I grew up with called secular. You guys ever heard that word? It can mean worldly, right? And, and secular is from the Latin word seculum, which means a period of time or in the now. Worldliness is secularism. It's timeism, nowism, the here, the now. That's, that's all that matters. Worldliness is an attitude that says the here and the now is all that matters. I don't care about anything else. So the, the here and the now is all there is. It's a worldly mindset. So in other words, it's not worldly to enjoy the world and worship God through it, but to make it an end in itself. To worship God's gifts instead of him, that's a problem. To make that Kobe steak, am I saying it right? Is it Kobe or Kobe? Kobe, Wagyu, however you say it. To make that an end in itself, when that becomes what we worship, we become gluttons. When that beautiful wine becomes what we worship, we become drunkards. But celebrating them as God's great gifts and enjoying him through them is part of what it means to be authentically human, right? This way of seeing worldliness is so critical for us as New City, if we're actually going to live out that name as a new city in this city that show people the ways of God through our life together, right? That's super important. And there's huge implications because... There's a huge difference between a worldly mindset and the mindset that Christians are called to have. Uh, one example uh, a mentor of mine used to use is if you go to a party, right? Two people go to a party. You got Joe and you got Jane. And they both go to the same party, and Jane sees 25 people, and Joe sees 25 people plus 75 others, right? How are they going to act? You know, pretty different from one another, Right? Jane's going to be over there, like, just stepping on people, tripping on people. And Joe's like, what the heck, Jane? You know? But Joe's over there in the corner talking to the thin air. And, and so Joe may think Jane is blind, but Jay, Jane is going to think Joe's crazy. Right? We tracking? So there's this, well, why is that? Because Jane, Jane doesn't see as much reality as Joe does. There's a difference between Christian mindset and worldly mindset because the Christian says, this world of time and space, it's only part of the real world, right? Surrounding the scene is the unseen. Surrounding time is eternity. And I refuse to act as if one is more real than the other. So there's that version of Christianity that says the spiritual is more real than the physical. That's Gnosticism. On the other hand, worldliness says the physical is all that matters. Spiritual, that's a private thing. And Christians, Christianity, stands between the Gnostics and the worldly mindset and says, I look not just to seen, but to the unseen. I look not just to time, but also to eternity. And as a result, Christians have a radically different way of doing everything. The philosophers talk about this. I mentioned this um, a few months ago. Baruch Spinoza uh, famously coined a term, subspecie eternitatis, um, which means from the perspective of eternity. Um, 
One of my favorite books of all time by Viktor Frankl um, is called Man's Search for Meaning. Viktor Frankl uh, was a World War II Holocaust survivor. And uh, after going through the concentration camps, you learn a lot about humanity, right? So you have something to say. And, and in this book, um, Viktor Frankl says this. It's a peculiarity of man that he can only truly live by looking to the future, subspecie eternitatis. What's Spinoza saying? What, what is Viktor Frankl saying? They're saying that we have to move around in time, subspecie eternitatis, from the perspective of eternity. In other words, we're called to live an eternal life, to make eternal decisions now, not just momentary or temporary light decisions. And if that's true, there's huge implications. First of all, in how we live in society, there's huge implications. Remember that word, worldliness or secularism, the idea that um, the now, the here is all there is? Imagine you're running a company or you're part of a corporation that it's, it's glad to give to people who are in need and, and you know, kind of run triple bottom line economics and things like that, but as long as it's really good for the financial bottom line. The moment it starts giving away too much, they say, oh, okay, we got to cut things back. We got to tighten up the belt because, you know, at the end of the day, um, we're really all that matters is the here and the now. What's happened there? Same thing that can happen in all our lives. Economic growth can become an end in itself. That's secularism. But what's the Christian say? Christian says, no, money, material things, they, they all eventually burn up, but people live forever. People live forever. Humans are made in God's image. We can never trample on people in order to just have more profit, right? Are you tracking? It's like, uh, at the end of the day, this company is, is, is a means to an end of loving and serving people and humanity. We're not going to make people a means to the end of my bottom line. Big difference there. What enables that kind of thinking? Eternal perspective. A different way of thinking. And this, this affects everything. It affects how you run a government. Totalitarianism, right? You know, because think about it. If the state is all that matters, if the state is going to live 500 to 1,000 years and people only live 70 to 100 years, you know, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. We can trample on a few people in order to make the state stronger. Make sense? But if you're a Christian and you believe people live forever, State's only 500 to 1,000 years. You would never trample on people in order to preserve a country. Does that make sense? Yeah. Also, worldliness is a source of relativism. I was reading an article the other day that was interesting. They were chronal, uh, chronicling an Ivy League school, and if you guys know this, uh, crime, racism, vandalism have been up in, in some of our un major universities. And so this official stepped up in a student meeting and said, guys, We've got to start teaching values again. And, and this is his, his, one of the staff members. And one of the students stood up and said, yeah, but whose values? And the crowd cheered. And that professor went and sat down like, ah, I don't know, stumped. Why? Because he had the same perspective as the student, right? If this world is all there is, values are just feelings. There's no basis for values. Studying the world, science can't give you values. It can tell you it's normal, but it can't tell you what's valuable, right? Unless there's something beyond this world, there's no such thing as right and wrong. It's all relative. Okay, and that's just the macro. Are you guys tracking? Apologies if this is a little philosophical today. 
it's kind of the mood I was in this week. I just, you know, that Kobe beef and that red wine. Hmm. <laughs> All right. Don't you see, your understanding of time and eternity radically affects the way corporations and states and schools and society runs. That's the macro. What about the micro? Your understanding of eternity will influence how you live today. If you want to understand worldliness, you've got to look at the most extreme secularists in our society. You know who they are? The most extreme secular people in our society? Kids. Serious. We have a tough job as parents, right? Trying to train kids to just like think of think of tomorrow. Right? Gavin, don't blow all your time and energy and money now. You should get some sleep, Gavin. You got an early day tomorrow. Oh, I don't care. Right? Gavin, save that dollar. We can go to Target in a week and get you some Legos. I don't care. Gavin, if you don't eat that candy right now, you can have ice cream with the family later. I don't care. I have my needs. I have my urges now, right? kids. One of the biblical words for worldliness is profane. And in the book of Hebrews, we're told that there was a guy named Esau who was a profane man. Why? Well, if you know the story of Esau, he's a mighty hunter, oldest brother, had the birthright, the inheritance, all that stuff coming to him, the blessing. But his brother wanted it. So his brother's out there making some stew, and Esau's been out all night hunting, and he's tired, and he comes lumbering, and he goes, i got to have some of that stew. And Jacob's like, no. He's like, give me some of that. He's like, okay, I'll give you some of that, but you've got to give me your inheritance. And what's Esau say? He says, what good is my inheritance if I don't live to use it? Give me the bowl of stew. Exaggeration. Worldly people always exaggerate the importance of the now. I don't care. I have my needs. I have my urges, my desires now. What was it that made Esau profane and worldly? He was childish. From God's perspective, the worldly person is engaged in cosmic childishness. A while back, Newsweek had an article um, on a guy who, a doctor who runs an AIDS clinic and um, uh, in New York. And the interesting thing happened. He was interviewing one of his patients, and he asked him, you know, are you still sexually active? And he said, yeah. And in fact, the other night, he said, did you talk to uh, your partner um, and let him know that you're infected? And he said, oh, no, doctor. It would have broken the mood. My needs, my urges, I don't care. I have needs now. How are you living? Is, is, is the now everything to you? Is creation just a means to worship God, or has creation become an end in itself? See, if you're thinking from a worldly mindset versus a Christian mindset, it makes all the difference in the world. Here's some examples of what it looks like. You know, um, a Christian has a completely different attitude regarding material things. If I had brought my wallet up here, I scrounged around and found a $100 bill. I was going to hold it up. It would have been way cooler than holding up nothing. But imagine you have a $100 bill. How are you going to use it? Are you going to use it on something that's just temporary? Something you consume in the moment? Or will you put your money into something that will last forever? Do you put your money into people? People last to build them up, to alleviate suffering, to bring the word of God to them. Do you put your money only into things that won't last? Are you a cosmic child? 
that says, I don't care about tomorrow. Now I have my urges, Dad. Um, I grew up over in uh, the hood part of San Diego, and I remember 24-hour fitness opened up over there, and we were like, what? And I walked in, and it was a Magic Johnson 24-hour fitness. You guys remember this? Magic Johnson was doing all this investment in certain areas, and so he was investing, like, putting 24-hour fitnesses in Starbucks. They were Magic Johnson Starbucks. It was so cool. And so I was researching on this, like, what in the world is prompting this? And there was an article in the L.A. Times, and they were talking about Magic Johnson doing this. And then something caught my eye, I remember. Um, the, the news reporter got really incredulous, right, all of a sudden, because he said, and Magic Johnson goes to this church in L.A., and he tithes 10%. Do you realize how much money he's just giving away to the church? In other words, it's reporter Joe noticing that Jane is just talking to thin air, right? Why would you do that? The world can't understand why somebody with an eternal perspective would give and give and give to the needs around them if they're not getting anything in return. But a Christian person said, here's my money. I want to put it into something that lasts. You're in your homeland, and things are becoming more and more complex. Hear me. The Christian is saying right now counts forever. Five billion years from now, I'll still be a personal, conscious person, and I'll know what I did today. I want to build into the eternal. I want to live from the perspective of eternity, subspecies eternitatis. I want to know that how I live today can hold up under that kind of light. If you're here and you're saying, that's wild, that's crazy, I don't buy it, then what Jesus would say is you're steeped in the world's mindset, whether you think you're a Christian or not. A Christian person says, I don't care about my urges. It's, it's what's it going to look like next year, next life, in the, in the next five billion years from now. So it changes our attitude toward material possessions. Also, it changes our attitude toward uncertainty. You know what um, worry is called in the Bible? It's called the cares of this world. You ever see that? The cares of this world. Listen very carefully. If, if this world is all there is, what defines you? Your relationships, right? Your, your achievement, your money, your status, your followers on social media, how many likes you get on your photo on Instagram. I'm preaching to myself right now. Why? Because that's, that's all you are. You're just a bunch of molecules. And you, when you die, you'll just turn back into dust. But a Christian says, literally, nothing is the end of this world. If, if you run around saying, that's it, my world's over, this is the end, the sky is falling, maybe, maybe some of you even right now, I don't know where you're at in your life, but maybe right now in this moment, you're, that's your feeling. Something inevitably bad is going to happen or something bad has happened and you feel like it's the end. And deep down inside, you're panicking. You're freaking out. Would you look at your panic? You feel paralyzed. Would you look at your paralysis? Here's what you're saying deep down. If that happens, it's the end of the world. And that betrays you. That's the essence of worldliness, isn't it? The essence of worldliness is this is it. This is all I've got. If it collapses, it's all I have. But the Bible says the mark of worldliness is, is anxiety. But the mark of a Christian mindset is peace and courage. That the Christian stands back and looks at the big picture and says, hey, what's going on right now? This is only part of reality. Yeah, the world, the world is never going to fall apart. This, this part of it that I'm experiencing right now might, but God is bigger than that. And in the end, he's the judge. He's the one that's going to make all things right. I trust him, right? 
No matter what's going on, he's in control, and I, I, I lean on him. Bitterness is essentially grounded in worldliness. Spiritual depression, all, all these things can, can flow from a heart that is, is, is obsessed with the now and not looking to eternity, but a Christian response to, to panic by stepping back and thinking about eternity and says, nothing is the end of the world. My world is bigger than this. Right? We tracking? It's quiet in here. So either I am boring you or it's hitting you. I don't know. Or maybe a, a blending? Of <laughs> some of you bored, some convicted. I don't know. We'll see. All right. Um, thirdly, a Christian can live with uncertainty, right? Lastly, a Christian's attitude towards relevance, toward being relevant. Don't we all want to be relevant? We all want to be loved. That's a song, isn't it? We all want to be loved. We all want just a little respect. It's true. There's this place in John 7, eight chapters earlier, where Jesus is, he's basically talking about the exact same thing. And his brothers have come to him, and they've said, hey, Jesus, the feast is going on, the festival, and everybody who's anybody is going to be there. And why aren't you going? In fact, let's read it. Um, I think I have it on the slide, Marco. Um, yeah, chapter 7, verse 2. But when the Jewish festival of tabernacles was near, Jesus' brother said to him, leave Galilee and go to Judea, so that your disciples there may see the works you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you're doing these things, go show yourself to the world, right? They say, Jesus, you're doing it all wrong. If you really want to get a platform, you're talking about the kingdom and being a king and all this stuff, you are, why are you in Galilee? Like, get up to Jerusalem. And Jesus, how does he respond to that? He says, you're right, but I'm not going, not now. Why? Because everything in Jesus' life was designed to challenge the world's ways. In that passage, he goes on to talk about how the world's going to hate him. And then now, eight chapters later, he's talking about it again. But everything in his life, like what's chic, what's charismatic, what's fashionable, what's relevant, Jesus was born in the wrong place. He picked the wrong people to follow him. He was born to the wrong kind of family. He ministered in the wrong place. He did everything backward, everything wrong. And as a result, Christians have to be people with x-ray vision. And here's what I mean. Um, the masterful work by Jack Black called Shallow How. Um, he <laughs> if you haven't seen it, don't bother. But <laughs> no, it's good. It's good. Um, but yeah, in, in, that, in that, you guys know the premise of the story? He's like a super shallow, you know, average San Diegan type of guy and uh, just looks on the outside. And um, there's all these wonderful, amazing women walking around his life, but he ignores them because there's always something he finds wrong with them. And finally, Anthony Robbins, like, in, they get trapped in an elevator, and he says some kind of voodoo magic on him. And all of a sudden, he can only see people for what's inside, not for what's outside. And uh, it changes him. It's a, it's a fun parable. But, but I, I don't know why I brought that up. Anyway, um, Christians look under the surface. There you go. Christians look under the surface. We're not overwhelmed with what's superficial and SoCalian, right? We don't play the world's games of fashion and sex appeal and, and chicness. Christians are able to look under the surface and say, that person is beautiful, regardless, regardless of what's on the outside. I'm not going to get overwhelmed by that amazing jacket. Is that Prada? You know, come on. Okay, anyway. 
We don't get caught up in whether people are attractive, intelligent. The moment we do, we start slipping back into that thinking of the world. And guess what? If that's happening to you, you're probably worried. You're probably filled with anxiety, and you're probably unable to part with material things because that sense of thinking, those things all go together. You want confirmation of that? Just read the Sermon on the Mount. Look at what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6. Right after the Beatitudes, Jesus talks about worry and materialism and vanity. Right? They, they, they go together. There's this place in Romans 13 where Paul says, the night is far, far spent, seculum, right? and the day is at hand, that eternal kingdom, this moment. Therefore, wake up. It's high time to wake out of sleep. What's he saying? He's saying worldliness is a kind of sleepiness. Many of us have experienced sleep. Some of you just a few hours ago. And, you know, what's happening when you're sleeping? You're attending to dreams, but you're not really aware of what's going on around you, right? Unless you're my wife sleeping next to our five-year-old or four-year-old because she moves no matter what. She's like, he snored weird. You know, like, how are you aware of that? Anywho, when we're asleep, we're attending to dreams and we're unaware of what's happening around us. And Paul is saying, wake up. Worldliness is sleepiness. If, if only I was more attractive. If only I had this, if only I could have landed that role, if only that person would have noticed me, if only things would have worked out. Guys, those are dreams. Wake up. Do you know what's solid? The mercies of God, the truths of God. Just imagine like those, like those characters in the Lord of the Rings, the greatness that could pass into you, the, the strength and stability and generosity and compassion and the patience. And imagine the insight, and the world would not be able to explain it. Know where it would be coming from? You stop thinking and living according to the patterns of this world. As you, you didn't let the waters you swim in seep into your pores and become your life. Briefly, Point two, and sorry, I spent my whole time on the first point, so let's hit these quick. Point number two, verse 18. If the world hates you, keep in mind it hated me first. If you start living an eternity-focused life, the world will misunderstand and even hate and even persecute you. First of all, they'll write strange articles about you in periodicals. Why is he giving all his money away? What's the catch? I remember hearing the story about a policeman in New York who, um, in the 70s, uh, you know, Times Square was not what it is now, back then, uh, full of pimps and prostitutes and drugs and brokenness. And, and these policemen would, would return to their cars that were parked there, and they would see notes all over it with cash, and they would just consider it tips back then. You know, it's the 70s. So just take that, throw it in your pocket, and you're good. And this one policeman uh, had become a believer, and he said, I can't accept that. I can't, accept, I can't condone the way these guys are treating these girls. They're eternal beings. They're creating the image of God. I can't condone it. And so he started turning the notes in and turning the money in, and all the other cops were getting ticked at him. And he ended up, in, in this story I'd been watching, got, getting booted off the force. Now, I'm not saying it's impossible to be a straight-laced cop, right? That's obviously not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is that if you live with an eternal perspective, you're going to challenge the status quo, right? 2 Timothy 3.12 says, all, all who live godly lives in Jesus will be persecuted. And that doesn't mean every day, right? I mean, look at Jesus. People loved Jesus. They were attracted to him. Look at the early church in the book of Acts. People loved the early church, and they were attracted to it. Yet, 
there were those who persecuted the church. If you're always being persecuted, you're probably not living right. Yeah, you're obnoxious. You're just a jerk, probably. Jerk in the name of Jesus. Like, nah, man, come on, dude. But on the flip side, if you're never being persecuted, you may not be living right either. Jesus Christ attracted those who were awed by him, and he repelled those who hated him. But nobody simply considered him pleasant, nice. Oh, Jesus, he's a nice guy, right? Are you just pleasant? Are you just nice and polite? Do you blend into the woodwork? Are people just being attracted to you? Is there anybody in your life that's repelled by the way you live, the way you give and love? If you're always persecuted, something's off. If you're never persecuted, something's off. You're probably chickening out somewhere. But let this be your consolation, point three. The world's hope. Are you not being persecuted? Look at yourself somewhere. You're probably caught in a worldly mindset, but that doesn't have to be the end of your story. Today, you can start to look and live from the perspective of eternity. You can walk down to the shoreline and breathe in the sea air and imagine that faraway place. Two, if you are being persecuted, not because you're a jerk, but simply by trying to be obedient, maybe you're losing out on promotions. Maybe you're struggling in relationships. I don't know how it's showing up in your life, but the Bible doesn't just say, ah, sorry, you're going to be persecuted. It's part of the gig. Just take it. It's part of life. Toughen up. What's it say? The Bible says rejoice when you're persecuted for righteousness' sake, for great will your reward be. You know what that means? Anyone in this room who's ever suffered anything, any loss for Jesus' name, can know there's tremendous reward. Eye has not seen, ear has not heard, neither has it entered into the hearts of man what God has prepared for those who love him. Jesus says you can't imagine, right? Think how great that's going to be, the, the unmixed joy, the, the wonder, the purity, the glory, the pleasure, all yours. You know, we're supposed to think about that. You're supposed to let it fry your circuits and overwhelm your life. You're supposed to walk the shoreline of the western sea and dream of that far-off land. How, how often are you doing that? How often are you being captured by a greater vision? Because that will set you free to do what Jesus says, to follow the Spirit into mission like never before. That's your security. That's your certainty, nothing else. That's why the world can't figure out those who live for eternity. Are we tracking? There were two Moravian missionaries back in the early 1800s who, they had this great burden for a huge slave colony in the West Indies. And uh, they started asking, how can we bring the gospel to this slave colony? And they realized that the only way to do it was to sell themselves into slavery. So they did. Now, why would they do that? Because they knew who they were. And as they stood on the shoreline waving goodbye, as far as they knew to their family and friends who they may never see again, they shouted, may the lamb receive the reward of his suffering. 
In other words, these, these are people who had strolled along the shoreline. And the waves of the Western Sea had sunk into their soul, and they dreamed of that far-off place across the sea. And that greatness of heaven had entered into them and set them free. And now here they are standing on the shores. And they might as well be saying what, what, what they said in Lord of the Rings. We still remember we who dwell in that far land beneath the trees, thy starlight on the western seas. So the first thing we need to do is look forward with eternal perspective. And, and secondly, in closing, we need to remember. Remember, remember in John 7, that passage where Jesus' brothers come to him and say, hey, go up to Jerusalem. You gotta, that's the only way you're going to be famous. You've got to show off. How does Jesus respond to him? This is what I want to close with. Verse 6 of chapter 7, Jesus said, Therefore Jesus told them, My time is not yet here. For you any time will do. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify that its works are evil. You go to the festival. I'm not going up to this festival, because my time has not fully come. Jesus says, My time isn't come. My time isn't here yet. What's he talking about? It's that word, kairos, moment. He's saying, my moment's not here. What moment, Jesus? What moment are you talking about? He's talking about the moment that we find him in now in chapter 15 in today's text. As he and his disciples are strolling along toward the garden, and he's telling them that the world's going to hate them. And in just a few moments, he's going to get on his knees, and he's going to cry and pray all night, and he's going to sweat great drops of blood. And he's going to cry out to his father, if it's possible, let this cup pass. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And then he's going to be betrayed in the garden by his friend with a kiss. And he's going to be marched off and mocked and beaten and tried and falsely accused and crucified. That's the moment he's talking about. In John 7, he said, hey, I can't go up to Jerusalem yet because I've got an appointment in a few days. But death, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. And all that physical pain didn't even compare to the cosmic suffering that Jesus felt as God's wrath against all our broken, self-centered, worldly mindset that's corrupted this world was poured out on him. He endured cosmic suffering. How? There's a scripture in Hebrews I love. It says this, For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising its shame. In other words, Jesus looked forward toward eternity. He lived in that moment with an eternal orientation. Subspecies eternitatis. Jesus lived for his moment so that we could be free to embrace ours. And now you're filled with his eternal spirit to remind your heart of the eternity you're living for. And I want to encourage you guys. Will you, will you close your eyes with me? I want to encourage you guys to stroll the shoreline today of the Western Sea to let your heart wander across the waves and, and let your heart long for your true home. 
Let the gospel hope that you have that you were lost, you were broken, you were steeped in a worldly mindset with no hope of rescue, and yet Christ came along and took your place out of love for you. And now you've been on these grand adventures, and now the greatness is passing into your soul. Can you see it? Can you, can you smell it on the ocean air? Can you hear it on the waves? Is your heart longing for the kingdom? And in a moment, we're going to come down and take communion. And I, I want to ask you, can you be honest about some questions? Where, where has the world gotten its hooks in you? What parts of your life are, are you living in a worldly mindset? Can you confess that today? How have you been living for the now instead of eternity? Will you, will you take time today to boldly repent and proclaim your faith again in the one who laid his life down for you so that you could take it up? And how does, how does this gospel of Jesus free you personally from all the trappings, the, the worry and the materialism and the, the vanity? Let's pray. Father, um, thank you for this time together uh, with a difficult topic but one that is so important for us to talk about because the water we swim in has great power over us. And like those two fish that met in the bowl in that, in that what is water, this is water video. And I think oftentimes we're completely unaware of the, the waves and the ebbs and flows of our life and how steeped in the mindset we are, how much it's sunken into our pores. And Father, I pray that that greater body of water, that home that we long for, that heavenly home, I pray that that would pass into our soul even more. That we'd be captured by a greater vision. Father, I pray right now for your people sitting here in this room who you prayed for, and I can't wait to get into that passage of Scripture in a couple of weeks the high priestly prayer of Christ. You prayed that we would not be overcome by the world. I pray that we wouldn't, Lord. I pray that you would draw us to yourself, that through the cross we would be able to see the love of the Father given for us through his Son, and that we'd be able to lay it all down again and say, may, may the Lamb receive the reward of his suffering. May we take bold steps to do things that don't make sense as your spirit leads us, God. May we be a church marked not by how chic and relevant and cool and hip we are, but marked by the fact that you've called us your own and that we are living in completely new ways, even if they don't seem to make sense to people around us. Have your way in this church. Have your way in this, this next few moments as we come down and pray and gather for communion and sing and worship. And I pray that you would take the, the mourning and the, and the brokenness and the sorrow that some of us may even feel in this moment and turn it into gladness because of what you've done for us through Christ. In your name we pray. Amen.